Well, that was perfect. That was awesome. That was everything that we would want worship to be. In fact, we could probably just pray and go home after our communion time and everybody just feel awesome about being here and about what God has just spoken to us about. You know, uh, one of the things that I was just inspired by, because Lori and I had these conversations here as of late, uh, and just over the weekend, which I'll share in just a moment. But uh, uh, by the way, this you can't start calling this, you know, like setting your clock. This isn't preaching time. Let me just close this up. I want to talk to you just for a second. Um, but in, intentions and effort matter, you know. I, Lori and I have been talking about just how cool it is for us to see these kids when they were just little, like, you know, the little ones that were up here, uh, now that they are grown and have kids, but they are also being leaders in the church. And uh, that's just so cool for us. You know, we remember little Connor, and he would dress up in his little suits and stuff, and he would come, and we all thought, you know, at that time, boy, he's going to be a preacher. And we just, we just knew that that was going to happen. And, and here he is leading the youth group and now leading worship and, uh, and having his kids up here, and it's just cool. So now we're looking forward to, wonder what these kids are going to do, right? Uh, and already we can see you know, them just doing things for the Lord and inspiring us even as little bitty children. Uh, it's, it's, it doesn't happen on accident. Not that we're guaranteed that it'll happen every time, but effort and intentions matter, and we just have to be reminded of that. And so we just keep plugging along. We keep trying to raise our kids the best we can, knowing that with the Lord's help, uh, they will choose, you know, his way and what's right and, and things of that sort. So it's awesome to see the next generation. I want to also, before I open the Bible, just kind of tell you thank you. So Lori and I got to go to uh, Shannon Toe on the lake. I, I probably pronounced that wrong, but it's a super fancy place in Branson. Ozark Christian College every year does this retreat. Uh, it used to be like a senior's retreat. Uh, they took off the senior part and just called it a retreat, trying to just encourage anybody and everybody. My wife didn't buy it, though. She made me call Ozark and say, hey, is this a senior's retreat? I, I guess she thinks that she's still too young to hang out with old people, you know. Uh, and so I called, and she's like, no, there's some 20s and 30s and 40-year-olds. We showed up. The 20s and 30s and 40-year-olds are the ones working for Ozark Christian College. <laughs> Uh, but uh, we were the young ones. I felt like a spring chicken. I mean, it was awesome. Uh, but uh, anyway, we had the, the best of time. Uh, we really did. And they are trying to, you know, kind of change the, um, uh, what you would call that, you know, just like how it's classified because they do want it to be open for anybody. And I guarantee if you went, you would feel just great, you know, about being there. Uh, we did. And it was our 30th wedding anniversary through that, uh, my 54th birthday through that. And Lori, you know, she's like, yeah, I'm married to the cheap guy. You know, he, he comes up with a way to accomplish both of those, celebrating both of those. Uh, but that's just such as ministry, right? <laughs> that's what we do. We are pretty, pretty crafty and things like that. But I just wanted to tell you, that, thank you for doing that. Um, when we came here like 22 years ago, it's hard to believe, but... Uh, one of the things that was in the package, so to speak, was to send me to these retreats a couple times a year. I hardly ever go. And it's not because of the church. It's because I just don't initiate it. I just don't do it, you know. 
And every time I go, I'm just like, why don't I do this more often? It is so uh, inspiring and encouraging. Uh, we talked about miracles. We talked about parables. Uh, when pigs can fly was the theme. And uh, it was really, really a, a, experience, a good experience. And so I just wanted to throw that in there to tell you thank you and what a great time we had. So we're going to be in Acts 13, uh, not where we were. We are moving on, but we're not finished with this chapter yet. And so we are going to go to the Acts uh, 13, and this is the next little stretch journey on Paul's missionary journeys. Uh, he's in a new location now um, and just continues to spread, you know, Jesus and the message of Jesus uh, to the people. I'm just going to read down to verse 16. Um, the whole section is down to verse 52, and instead of reading the whole thing, I've decided that I'm just going to kind of walk us through most of it. Uh, maybe you can go back and just read uh, the whole sermon uh, and uh, sometime today or, or this week. But let's look at 13 through 16. It says, Now Paul and his companions set sail to Patipos, Patipos and came to Persia in Pamphylia, Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Persia, uh, came to Antioch and Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Now, one of the things that we already had talked about and discussed, and we'll see over and over and over, is the first place that Paul goes when he goes to town is where? The synagogue. Because that is just what God has instructed him to do. Go to the Jews first, then to the Gentiles. We, we learned that in Romans, and this is what he does. Uh, verse 15, it says, After the reading from the law of the prophets, the rulers of the synagogues sent a message to them, saying, Brothers... If you have any word of encouragement from the people, say it. So Paul just took an opportunity, right, that was laid before him to speak. And so Paul stood up, motioned with his hands, and he said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. And so what did Paul do? He began his sermon. His, and we're not going to walk through, you know, reading through all that, but I just want you to know that it was a history lesson type of sermon. There's a whole lot of different types of sermons that we preachers preach, but this is just going back and leading him through the history of God and how God has worked through mankind, and he has a very specific place that he wants to land his sermon, and that is Jesus and everything that Jesus did, but that it was God's plan from the very beginning. So he just starts with Moses and and him going and telling Pharaoh, let my people go through 40 years of wilderness, through 450 years of God destroying nations and handing over to his people the promised land. And he just, Paul is just unraveling all of this. But he finally gets to Jesus and he spends the bulk of his time there. And we don't have all of the sermon, by the way. This is a pretty lengthy, you know, a sermon that is written out that we normally get in passages of scriptures, but this, if he preached this, this like this was his manuscript sermon, it would take him about two minutes, you know, to preach it. Uh, his sermon probably lasts most of that afternoon. Uh, so we know that we're just kind of getting the snidbits, but we also know that most of his conversation there, his preaching there, was about was about Jesus, which is where we are eager to get to ourselves. And the whole point. Of any time we gather, we know is Jesus. That's why we are we end at the table. Uh, that's why you know that's 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 where all of our hope is. We know this. 
And here's the dominant thought, by the way, of his sermon. And so we'll just jump to the most dominant thought, and that is verse 38, 39. It says, and this is what Paul would have preached. He says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers. Like, let me sum up where we are. That through this man, meaning Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Jesus is finally here. He's finally given real, true freedom. They couldn't find it through the law. Beware, therefore, he says, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astonished and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells you to. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. So the day got long, and they were just going to be continued, to be continued the next Sabbath, you know, and he was going to pick up there. They were eager about hearing everything that Paul was saying. This is, for some of them, this was absolutely all new stuff, right? This is something they've been looking forward to, you know, the Messiah, and now he's here, and they, they were on pins and needles. I bet if Paul wanted to continue, this wouldn't be like, oh, finally, he shuts up, you know, let's go home. Uh, it wouldn't have been like that. It would have been more like, why can't you just continue? Why won't you just go ahead? Uh, and I think Paul maybe, or God, in, encouraged him through the Spirit, but let's just let that soak in a little bit. Now, preachers are always concerned about how their messages will be received. I know I am, but I think I, that is common common for any preacher. We want a reaction from you all of some sort. You know, I was just reading about, uh, you know, one preacher, he was talking about that um, on a Sunday, a particular Sunday, there was a, a, an older couple that was sitting like three rows back, you know, from the front. And, and they, he's known these people for a very long time. One of them is a military man, and he, you know, has kind of loss of hearing. And, and they're both kind of at that age now that uh, they don't, they think they're quiet and they're not quiet, you know. Um, and uh, so they were sitting back about three row, and, and she began to just feel nauseated. She just didn't feel well, right? And so she leans over to him and she says, hey, I'm not feeling good. Actually, I forgot about this part. So he's in the middle of a sermon and the guy's asleep. That makes sense, right? (laughs) And so she quietly wakes him up and then explains to her, hey, I'm not feeling well. He said, well, let's get the H-E, I'll just leave it at that, out of here. (laughs) And he just said it pretty loud. And so he was kind of (laughs) known for that little episode um, and uh, it was quite comical. That's not the kind of reaction as preachers like. <laughs> Just so you know, that's not what I'm talking about. And we're not actually, and I'm speaking in just like most of us, I think the majority of us, we're not looking to get a reaction of great job or that a boy, you know, you did a wonderful job. It's not that kind of reaction either. We're not looking for gratification or glorification, but we are looking for people to inspired to want to live the truth. Like the Word of God has just really made a difference today. And they are inspired to make some changes or step out in faith and do something. And there's nothing that makes a preacher feel better than when he feels like he's contributing to um, delivering the Word of God to people. Because we all know, 
especially preachers, know that it's the Word of God that changes. It's the Spirit of God who is the power. It's God working in them. And so when we feel like that the, the Spirit has been stirred, that is just really satisfying. So how is it that Paul, preaching all day, what kind of reaction did he get? Well, let's look at the reaction that he got. It's in verse 43. After, and after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, because that's when you kind of find out, right, about some of this. Many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. That's quite a reaction, right? I mean, they went out and got the whole town to come back for the next Sabbath. You've got to come and listen to this guy. And it was just really cool because they were following them out, and they just wanted to hear more and talk to Paul more. So I, I imagine Paul and Barnabas went to bed that night just kind of yakking back and forth like, was that not awesome? I mean, that was so cool how the whole Spirit was just leading and guiding in that. And that is fantastic. Paul had to feel great about the response. But have you ever noticed that butts get in the way? Maybe that didn't sound quite right, but you know what I mean, right? In verse 45, it says, but when the Jews, like right after this amazing response, we get this word, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, rivaling him. The Jews did everything they could to destroy everything that Paul and Barnabas was trying to do. And to be honest with you, they did a pretty good job. We will find out a little bit later. I think I read that, but even if I don't, if you read it later, you will know that somehow they really kind of twisted and turned and changed the momentum and what was happening there. And it's all driven by... There's a word here. Did you pick up on it? What was it driven by? Jealousy. So we can't ignore this word. We've got to talk about this word. And to be honest with you, it's not a very word to have a, conversation, a good conversation with in the church because it is something that is so destructive in the church. It's destructive, actually, just in life. So today's conversation is going to be about this. You know, Proverbs 14, verse 30, it says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. And that word envy can be translated jealousy. And the word jealousy here that we find in our scripture could be translated envy. They are so connected, it's really hard to know if it's not actually the same thing. And it kind of pretty much is. Jealousy. Jealousy is that emotion that you feel when someone likes your man or your woman more than you think that they ought to like them, right? You felt that one before, I bet. Jealousy is, is when you feel how you feel about uh, the rival who got your job or your position or they got a pay increase and you didn't. And so they got a promotion and you didn't. Or, or the, the, the feeling that you feel when the custody rights didn't go your way. 
The jealousy that you feel when somebody has a better house, a fancier car, and, you know, more money in the accounts. Things are going better. They have better kids, at least behaved-wise. Jealousy is what you feel when you got, you know, a better treatment over the, the person, you know, because of the color of their skin or because of their age or because of their beauty or because of their charm or because of, you know, their sex. He's a man, he's a woman, or she's a woman. You know what I'm talking about. I mean, jealousy is just like a thing that I think we've all felt at some time or another, that sting, that hurt, that sense of betrayal, that, that something, you know, that has created just this feeling in us that is painful and is, it's terrible, actually. And left unchecked, it usually creates, like, behaviors we never really thought would even come out of us, you know. Like, we know I'm behaving wrongly. I know this isn't right. And sometimes it's like behavior that is so bad that it gets us into some major trouble. I was reading the other day about uh, Wu, Wu Xia. He's 21, from China. He broke up with his long-term girlfriend, uh, Jun Tang. She was 20. After he met a new love, She's 22, so the older woman, right? Rong uh, Taho. Uh, I don't know if I pronounce those names right. But however, it was just kind of interesting. So there was like this three month where Wu and Yang uh, broke up, and she's wanting him back, you know? So she is like, won't let up. Everything that she can contact him through, through social media, drop him by the job, whatever, she's trying to convince him to take her back. And so he finally decided that, you know what, I'm just going to meet with them. This is in Eastern China. I'm just going to meet with the two of them, the three of them. Now, you know he's 21 years old because that's the stupidest thing, idea that anybody could ever have, thinking that that will go okay, right? So he gets together with these two ladies in the midst of, I don't even know if they even started a conversation, but there was definitely an argument that took place. The old girlfriend decided that she had to come up with some strategy. So her strategy, you can tell she's young because this was stupid, but she just threw herself in the river, thinking he'll save her and then that will win him over, right? And uh, so the new girlfriend, the older one, saw what was going to take place, and she's just like, well, that's not going to happen. So she threw herself in the river. Now he's left with a choice, which is he. I'm not making this up, by the way. What reason I'm telling you this is that this is the craziness of jealousy, is it not? I mean, if you Google jealousy in stories, you will see, like, I had my pick. I mean, it's like, I don't even know. I've never had so much illustration material in my life to be able to share at a sermon because this is what jealousy does. It's just the most ridiculous thing. But you probably want to know what he did, don't you? Well, he jumped in and rescued the new one. He pulls her out, and he takes her off, swoops her up, and takes her off to the emergency room. Hollers at his brother. I wish I don't know where he was. I thought it was the meeting of the three. But anyway, the brother didn't even want to rescue the old girlfriend. He just calls the brigade and has them rescue her, which this must have been a public place. I don't know. 
He surely didn't have all this planned out, but anyway, that was just the story. And not only is there like so many illustrations like this, I mean, just that would be like, really, did that happen? But you and I know that this is the way jealousy works. It will cause some of the craziest, stupidest, oddest things to happen. And it's not just in our world, in our time. This has been an issue throughout history. It is packed full in the Word of God. Have you noticed? I mean, we could go to Joseph, which we went there this morning in our Sunday school class with Emily. But by the way, Emily was teaching today. And our class is kind of small, but it should be large because she is amazing. And if you guys are looking for a place to plug in, yeah, there's a couple of our students. If you're looking for a place to plug in, she and I have been tag teaming this uh, for a while, just studying the Bible. And, uh, and she's just doing an amazing job. So you ought to come and check us out, okay? And we're right over here. So anyway, so we, she was talking about Joseph and the coat of many colors. And you know that if you know that story, that the dad favored this youngest son. He wasn't, Benjamin eventually came and he was the youngest, but, but dad latched on to Joseph. And he didn't make it real private. The kids knew. But there's a scripture there in Genesis 37, 4. It says, when... Joseph's brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers. They, what does it say? They hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now down in verse 11, it tells us the root of that, and that is jealousy. These brothers were so jealous of their little brother that they conspired At some point in time, they saw him coming, and they were, like, conspiring. We ought to just get rid of this dude. Now, that's crazy. I know that you think that that's crazy, but that's what jealousy actually does when it's left unchecked. It will get to the point where it not only creates hatred, but it can even take it further, and that it would create murderous attitudes and thoughts and kin to conspire. And if it wasn't for Reuben, one of his older brothers, that that come up with the idea, let's just sell him into slavery, they would have actually killed him. That's what they had to go home and tell, make up a lie, you know, to their dad. But they sold him into slavery just for some money. And that was all out of jealousy. But that's not the only one. Just think of Cain and Abel. It's all about jealousy, isn't it? You know, God really uh, admired Abel's what he brought to the table and what he was offering up. And Cain was so jealous about that that he went out and he killed his brother. Jealousy is such a destructor of emotion. It's no reason that in the Word of God it is condemned over and over and over. Not only is the Bible packed full of these illustrations like our world is today, but it also is packed full of condemnation about the behavior. God absolutely does not approve of it and won't put up with it. Just like, for instance, let's look at a couple in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. This is what God says. Now, the works of the flesh are evidence. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, you know that those are like major no-nos for God. 
sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy. There it is. Fits of rage, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. God just won't put up with it. Envy or drunkenness. Exodus 20, which you know, is where we find the Ten Commandments. And in the midst of that, in Exodus 20, verse 17, it says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. And it's just trying to help us understand where God sees this. We know it's destructive. God knows it's destructive. God will not be okay with it. But yet jealousy is something that not, it's not like, it's not like something you grow into. You know, like when you turn 21, you're going to start dealing with jealousy. So let us help you try to figure out when you're born, you start dealing with jealousy. Am I right? I mean, like it seems like this, this moment that you realize that somebody just took your toy or they have a better toy than you, you have or something like that, it, it, it just seems like it, it can begin. And so even as early children, it lasts a lifetime and it can wreck love between two people who thought that they were inseparable. It can bring nations to war. It's the most powerful thing out there that can just bring ruin in such a quick way. James chapter 3, verse 16, it says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Now think about that. If jealousy is within the church, what do we can expect from it? We will expect disorder and vile practice. James 4, the next chapter, verse 2, it says, You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You desire your neighbor or your neighbor's stuff, and you don't have, so you murder. And I know that most of us are like, there's no way I would do that. But is that right? I mean, don't you think that Cain probably at some point and would have said the same thing or, or uh, Joseph's brothers would have said the same thing? I don't think, when we walk through all of the places in Scripture that, that we're to, we find jealousy, I don't think that any of those people were initially like just bent on killing like they were just horrible people. I think jealousy just kind of led them down the path until they arrived there and they're like, I'm doing something I never would have thought I'm doing. But you desire, you do not have, you murder. It goes on to say, you covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. We're going to get to that, but just chalk away for a moment that that phrase there because you wanted to spend it on your passions because that's pretty significant if we're going to ever get beyond being so affected and contaminated and and uh, um, you know just controlled by jealousy 
Here's the thing. Here's, we're going to come up with two little, and they're not little, major solutions to our jealousy issues. Hopefully, by this point, though, you see that it is just a, it is something that we have to guard against, and it is something that can come to any and every one of us. We probably all have felt it. And here's the first thing that I want you to, want you to know about it, and that is this. This is so important. But jealousy, it's a sin. And I, I somehow want to make sure that you not only hear that, but that you receive that. That this is condemned by God. And this is supposed to be condemned by his followers. And that when you feel it, you have to understand that you are about to be encouraged to let something in that will destroy you, destroy people around you, and destroy your relationship with God because he won't have anything to do with this. He put it on the same list that if, if this is you, you won't inherit the kingdom of God list kind of thing. But jealousy will make you do crazy things. I read about a Britain woman who made her husband take a lie detector test to prove that he had been faithful every time he left the house. So obviously she owned her own, right? And isn't that the craziest thing? I'm kidding you not. Debbie Woods, she might as well be named for, for that kind of behavior, 42 years old was so paranoid, or is so paranoid, that her partner, Steve Wood, who is 30, will stray, that she has to check his phone as soon as he comes in, all of his emails, his bank accounts, and have him take a lie detector test of her day. Mr. Wood, who started dating Debbie in 2011, or, yeah, 2011, after they met through a friend, is even banned from watching women on television or looking at pictures of them in magazines. Now, that's all I know, just so you know. But that's enough for me to want to, oh, I want to pass some judgment on that. <laughs> I would love to just kind of put my two cents in and tell you what I think about that situation and where I think that's going to end if it hasn't already. But I'm just not going to. But here's what it also said. It says, doctors have discovered that the woman, Debbie, is suffering from Athelio syndrome, a psychiatric disorder which causes sufferers to believe their partners have been unfaithful even without evidence. Athelio syndrome. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. That's why, you know... We can't pass judgment because it's a sickness. It's an illness. Jealousy, man, it can cause us to do so many crazy things. And it's, it always progresses in our life. Like we, if, if you are a little child and your parent does not get on to you for being jealous, it can just keep increasing. It's just one of those things that never like is just... You have it, and, and you just have it, and it stays here. It's something that always progresses within it. That's why it can lead to murder, right? It can go from, 
it can lead to hate, but it can also go another step and lead from hate to actually killing someone. But here is what I think about that. I don't agree with the diagnosis. I think that's just a bunch of baloney. Now, it's not because I am passing judgment, because I told you that I wouldn't. The reason that I believe that is because I believe that God has passed judgment on that. And I just, I, I don't know about you, I don't know if you ever get frustrated or fed up when people come around and they try to rewrite the Word of God. But when God says something, I just have to, and when he says it repeatedly and over and over, through a period of years, over a thousand years, he didn't change his mind. And it was that way in the Old Testament. We could look at Old Testament scriptures. We could look at New Testament scriptures where he still condemns it. And his condemnation for it has not changed. He knows he created us. He knows if there's a a syndrome, syndrome out there or a sickness or some people shouldn't be held accountable, but he never indicates any of that. All he does is says is it's wrong and it's a sin and it will keep you out of heaven is all he tells us. And I don't know, do you get frustrated when people come along and try to rewrite it? I mean, like the fact that we are struggling with homosexuality and we're thinking, well, it's not, it's not a choice. I didn't choose it. I was born with it. Well, the only problem I have with that is God didn't say that. And God seems to indicate that it's a choice. And I kind of think that it can actually be one of the things that we're terrified of, right, is that bringing it into schools that actually you could take people that would never dealt with that and you're going to train them, their thinking, their process, and you will make them into. And we know that that's so. Because we think that way about everything. But it's also that way about love. Do you ever get tired of people saying that love is not a choice? Love is a command from God. And if God commands something, then obviously it's a choice. Well, he wouldn't command you to do something that you could do. What about forgiveness? He says, if you won't forgive, I won't forgive you. And, and we could talk about this. I mean, we give excuses for anger. We give excuses for lust. I don't know, I get tired sometimes that we are always trying to rewrite the Word of God, but the re- reality is, is God calls jealousy a son. And that's it. And anybody that wants to come along and try to find a way to excuse it or, or anything else by calling it a syndrome and that we don't control anything is just doing people injustice and doing us a world of harm as individuals. We would love to have a syndrome for just about anything that we can't control, would we not? Cain would be off the hook if this was, this, if this was the case. He, God would have no right to condemn Cain and punish him the way he did. Saul would have been off the hook. And I don't mean the Saul of the New Testament, but that's so too. But I'm talking about the King Saul of the Old Testament, who, as soon as David, because Saul was, as the Bible says, was this very tall, very handsome, good-looking man. But you know what happens? 
the tall, handsome, good-looking men always get older, and there's always going to be a newer, good-looking man that comes up, and that's what the Bible says about David. Boy, was he good-looking. And he comes up, and guess what? The people end up loving David. They just love him so much, and that just created, the Bible says, that Saul had jealousy towards David. Now he's chasing David all over the countryside trying to figure out how to kill him just because of this. Daniel's co-workers, <laughs> they threw Daniel in the lion's den. They conspired any way they could to get him there. Why? Because of jealousy. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's accusers. They should have been off the hook. They were just, it wasn't their fault that they felt that way. Here's what I'm trying to get at is that we will never get rid of this thing, this green-eyed monster in our lives as long as we think that we're justified or excused to have this green-eyed monster. Or that we are blaming on the person who we think initiated in the first place, the boyfriend, the girlfriend, the boss, the the, you know, whatever the situation. If you feel jealousy, it is completely on you. And it is your job to acknowledge what it is, and that is sin, and to push it out of our lives. And it can seem very harmless at the time, and we can even have people in our lives encouraging it, because it feels pretty good that my wife got a little bit jealous. And it probably is a little bit innocent at the beginning just because that's the nature of temptation. Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are yet without sin. There is a a line that gets crossed, is there not? And that's when we just accept it in and allow it to be. And Jesus never did. He felt tempted, but he never sinned. Proverbs 27.4 says, Wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? So we could talk about anger and we could talk about cruelty and those would be some pretty crazy things to talk about. But you know the Bible says that jealousy is like way up there above that. Proverbs 6.34 says, For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. This is why jealousy can lead to murder, is because of that. So, all of that said, and that's really our big point here, is this. Don't let anybody tell you that jealousy is not a sin. Don't let anybody convince you it's a syndrome and that you just suffer from something. Condemn it for what it is. Confess it for what it is. And humble yourself before God when you feel this. Or it will eat you and it will eat people around you. Condemn it in your kids. Try to make sure that they understand that this is just a wrong thing to feel. And a wrong thing to, to embrace. Here's the second thing that I think will help us that we find in this scripture. And that is just this. The second thing is how Paul demonstrates an alternative, alternative to this. Like, he shows us how to really 
never let it even creep into our lives. And that is, put your confidence in God and not in yourself and make life about him instead of yourself. That's what Paul demonstrates. We're going to look at that in the last part here, but jealousy is rooted in those things. Jealousy, if you felt jealousy, it's because you have a lack of confidence. I mean, that's not one of the things. Like, like a, the guy comes in, you got a girlfriend, and, and you're having this nice meal, and everything is going, and this young man comes in, and he's just everything that you are not, right? He's better dressed, better, has better manners. He, he just does everything that, and so he sits right next to you. You're almost praying that he would just keep on walking by, but he sits next to you. He has conversation with your girl, and you are like so jealous, because you are feeling insecure. You're feeling your, your confidence is so low. And so that's the thing. It's rooted there. It's rooted in fear. We're afraid of some, losing something. We're afraid we're not going to get something. And so that's where jealousy comes. But let me tell you something. Here's a way to avoid it at all. I mean, like this will work like every time. And it's what Paul and Barnabas do. It's in verse 49. For the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, but the Jews incited the devout woman of high standing and the leading men of the city stir up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drive them out of their district. Now, we've already talked about this a little bit, but when Paul got done preaching, Paul and Barnabas, they had the most amazing response, you remember? They went out and recruited everybody in town to come and listen to them. They were, and it also tells that the Gentiles were just finding out about this, and they were, they were overwhelmed with happiness because they found out who Jesus is. And so it's just like this is perfect. It couldn't be any more perfect. But then jealousy comes along, and they begin to stir up dissension and trying to change everything, and they do. They accomplish it. So they get these devout women of high standards and these leading men, and they ended up stirring up persecution, and they drive out Paul and Barnabas from the city. Wow. But here's what I want you to see, how Paul and Barnabas react to this. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. How is it that Paul and Barnabas could, could have this on-top-of-the-mountain experience of people responding to their message the way this is, in a blink of an eye because of jealousy, turns it completely around, and they're driving them out of the city, and they just seem to be okay about it, hop-skipping them down the road to the next town. They were full of joy it says, filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And I believe that it's because they weren't there for themselves. They weren't there to build their kingdom, to build anything for themselves. They were just there to do, be obedient and to just be a servant and just do what God has called them to do. It didn't really matter if the response turned the world 
upside down in a good way or turn the world upside down in a bad way. They were just doing what they were called to do. And the Holy Spirit was full. You know the prodigal son story, right? The prodigal son wants his inheritance. He goes to his father. Hey, I'm tired of living here. Just give me what comes to me now instead of waiting for you to die. And the father reluctantly but did give it to him. He went off, squandered it, all this, right? Living with pigs, just behaving terribly. He comes to his senses. He eventually comes back to the father. And what does he find? He finds a father that is waiting and couldn't, he just couldn't be more grateful that his son has returned and he embraces him and he's like wanting to kill the fattened calf and have a gigantic party. But the older son who had remained there and served his father and, and uh, continued to just be faithful in that way, what was his attitude in all of that? The Bible says that he was jealous towards his little brother. And he was upset that his dad would do this, that would give him this robe and this ring and have a big party and all this on his honor. Because why, why does that bother him? Because he says, the son says, I have behaved. You see, all of a sudden he was, he was so focused on what he either wasn't getting or was getting. Like, he, he was upset because he felt like his father had favored his son over him, right? He, he felt like he wasn't being appreciated. My, my dad just doesn't appreciate me and what I have sacrificed, what I have done. He wasn't getting what he felt like he deserved. And all I know is that his eyes were completely on him and not on the father. If his eyes somehow could have been on his father and saw how amazingly grateful his father was, he wasn't trying to say, you're not, I don't love you, son. I'm just, I love the fact that I have two sons at home again. If he could just have kept his eyes on the father, it would have been a different outcome. But that's what the problem with jealousy is, is so focused on what we, on me. And that's what I think is really cool about our scripture here is that Paul didn't seem to have this. Paul was, wasn't thinking like that. He was just thinking about what, not what he deserved, but what, what he didn't deserve, like what God deserves. God just deserves me to be focused on him. He, was, he wasn't concerned about being rejected. He was concerned about pleasing God. There's an old Chinese proverb that, that simply says this, and it's, your greatest enemy is yourself. Your greatest enemy is yourself. Your worst enemy on the path of almost every obstacle when it comes down to it is, is you. That's just like forgiveness. Who does forgiveness, unforgiveness really hurt? It hurts the person who harbors it. You end up becoming your worst enemy. The one, they're not destroying you. You are destroying you because you harbor this and won't let it go like God has instructed you to do. And so we build these walls upon ourselves. The Pharisees thought that they were lovers of God. But in reality, Jesus pointed out to them and pointed out to us many times, they were lovers of who? 
themselves. They loved their comforts. They loved their possessions. That's why the rich young ruler, who was a really good Jewish man, because Jesus told him, if you want to be perfect and have eternal life, then, then keep the commandments. And he boastfully says, well, I have done that since I was a kid. And Jesus said, go sell all your possessions and come follow me then. And he couldn't do it because they were so focused on their comforts and their possessions and the, the things that they wanted. That's the problem here, right? Their jealousy, the reason they were jealous of Paul and Barnabas, not because of what they were saying, because they were just talking about God and they gave a history lesson. They were jealous because these people were about to take over our prestige. They were about to take over all these people's uh, wanting to look for, to us for all of the answers and to bow to us and to give us comforts. And who do you, where do you think we got our comforts and our possessions from? These people are going to ruin it. And this is what happens. And so back to Joseph just for a second, and we'll close out. But Joseph's brothers... They did what they did out of jealousy. Joseph had these roller coasters. He's in prison. He's being run out, you know, of Pharaoh's, I mean, uh, uh, Potiphar's household because of, of his wife uh, falsely accusing. All these things happened to Joseph. And the thing about Joseph is he is just such an amazing character in the Bible, such an amazing man, always trusting God in through all of this, always keeping his eyes on God through all of this. You never see him having these bouts of like jealousy or revenge or anger. The, the closest we come is that when he finally, his brothers come to town, then he has this temptation, this struggle, but he never does carry through with it. How is it that that's possible to not allow jealousy to actually, you know, create this in you? Because he missed out on so much a family and, and things because of jealousy. But this is what it tells us in Genesis 50, verse 20. It says, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people would keep, be kept alive as they are today. Joseph somehow made it about God instead of about himself. You see that? He made it about God instead of it on himself. And I think that that is the key. Paul and Barnabas just made it about God. So instead of walking away, feeling anger, jealousy, rage, they just felt joy because they were serving God instead of themselves. They, were not, they weren't serving themselves. If they were serving themselves, they would have walked away and thought, man, that was a complete failure. We, we accomplished nothing. We were so close to being winners, but we ended up walking away being losers in that one. Let's try the next town. But that was, that's not joy, right? But they walked away with joy because it wasn't about that. Anyway, we're going to go into communion and I just want to say a couple things about this time.
the reason we have this is because of jealousy. In a way. Because what took Jesus to the cross? It was because of jealousy. Because where jealousy lives, and I'm not saying that we have this, so let's be thankful for jealousy. Don't get me wrong. But that's what took Jesus to the cross. But Jesus allowed that because Jesus was focused on the Father and on what the Father wanted. He could have escaped that. He could have came down off the cross. He could have just prevented it from ever happening. But jealousy is what initiated it in in a negative way, right? But Jesus' reaction was to say, focus on the Father. Just like Paul and Barnabas' reaction was to say, focus on the Father. Just like Joseph was to say, focus on the Father. And these are people that weren't affected by jealousy. When Jesus was on the cross, when Paul and Barnabas is leaving, they're just skipping away with joy and the Holy Spirit in them. In Joseph's situation, he's just like, yeah, let bygones be bygones. Embrace his family, glad to have him back. He could see God in the whole picture, and he just let it go. When Jesus is on the cross because of jealousy, what does he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That is what will rescue us, is if we keep our eyes on the Father. So, so jealousy played a, way, a role in this, but it was a very negative role, one that should be condemned in every way. Well, what should be embraced with us is to keep our eyes on the Father and to acknowledge that jealousy is a sin and to be really focused upon how he did it and what he wants us to do when we are affected by it. I don't know your situation exactly. I don't know any, anybody in particular that is dealing with this or being dealt this with them. But I do know we have a whole lot of situations, school situations in Boston, employee situations, and, and family situations, and relationship situations, and I know that this creeps in. And let's just pause for a moment and acknowledge it for what it is. It's a sin. And just stay focused on the Father, for that's our escape. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for showing us the way out. For helping us realize, Father, that you are our way out of everything. You are our hope. You are what keeps sanity within us. And, Father, I just know that as we just make life about you and less about us, that life is just good. It allows us to just walk away from some of the craziest things with just joy in our heart. Father, help us not be deceived by the world in thinking that this topic that we talked about today can be okay in any situation. It is, should, should be condemned in every situation. And help us, Father, to flee from it, to repent from it, to confess it, 
and to say the same thing about it that you say about it and not what the world says about it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.